I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. A teenage girl is abducted by a vicious serial offender, but would her quick thinking and attention to detail mark the end of his reign of terror? This is the Lisa McVeigh story. Hi, Megan. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Amy. Thank you for asking. And I just wanted to bring up Direct Appeal Season 2 because we aired the entire season a bit ago, but we have since received a number of emails, which we always appreciate. And these emails have addressed some very critical issues in Sarah Widmer's case. And for those of you who have not listened to Direct Appeal Season 2, I would skip ahead for the next 30 seconds to a minute so that we don't give anything away for you. So some of the emails that we received shed light on the use of CPR and how it can be very stressful and confusing when a loved one is involved. I can tell you specifically someone wrote in who is skilled in CPR currently and said when it was their loved one, it was almost like a brain fog. They just could not perform. So. I think that this person wanted to shed some light on how possibly Ryan just didn't know what he was doing. And it's not that strange. We also received a number of emails from people who suffer from narcolepsy and many other sleep disorders as well. They shared with us some of the terrifying and potentially life-threatening situations they survived. I would like to point out as well that some of these people fell asleep in water. Mm Mm-hmm. And so these questions about how could this happen? Well, I'm telling you that I have a number of emails from people who this did happen to. Yep. And it seems like overwhelmingly people seem to believe in Ryan's innocence. That is the feeling that I've gotten so far. We Mm -hmm. did get a couple of emails in which people did not believe in his innocence, but more so and more overwhelmingly, they believed in Ryan's innocence. If not, they just didn't believe in his guilt or that it was proven in a court of law or that Correct. you know some of the evidence should have been evidence. Mm-hmm. We also received information about long QT syndrome, which was the syndrome that Sarah possibly had. So I received a tip from someone who has several family members who suffered from it and didn't have any of the markers, you might say, and who passed away suddenly. 
And so this listener said, please, you know, please implore someone to do the biological testing. As we explained, that testing can be done and Ryan's lawyers are petitioning for it. So overall, I just want to say a big thank you to listeners who listen to both Women in Crime and Direct Appeal and, you know, who helped us, who supported us, who wrote in with their opinions, these tips and other helpful information. Anyway, overall, a big thank you to our listeners. We are grateful as usual for your help and support. All right, back to Women in Crime. For today's episode, I ended up finding this case when I was researching for another case. And that often happens to both of us, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. But I was so fascinated by this story and I really felt our listeners should hear it. I don't think it's as widely publicized as it could be, but I I am sure that both you and the listeners will soon see why I was so fascinated and I think you will be as well. So let me introduce you and the listeners to Lisa McVeigh. Lisa McVeigh was born in 1967. She did not have a good childhood. In fact, it was the complete opposite. Her father was not present and her mother was quite unstable with a history of substance abuse issues. And Lisa and her mother often wound up living on the streets in the area of Tampa, Florida. Lisa was in and out of foster care as well, with her maternal grandmother agreeing to take her into her home when Lisa was approximately 14 years old. At that time, her grandmother had a live-in boyfriend and almost immediately, he began sexually abusing Lisa. And it was not a secret, Amy, unfortunately, to her grandmother, who pretty much told Lisa that she was going to learn what it was like from a young age how to please a man. This is an awful start. A scared 14-year-old Lisa did not initially know what this meant, but over the course of the next three years, she would find out because Lisa would be subjected to ongoing physical and sexual violence in her home. By the age of 17, Lisa was completely hopeless and extremely depressed, and she really just could not take this abuse and the pain anymore. So on the night of November 2nd, 1984, Lisa made the decision to end her life. After working a double shift at Krispy Kreme, she left her job around 2 a.m. on November 3rd, fully planning to die by suicide when she arrived at home. But Lisa had no idea what was about to happen, and I can assure you it was not good. Lisa only had a bicycle to get back and forth to work. So at 2.15 a.m., Lisa was riding her bicycle past an empty church parking lot, and she noticed a red car that struck her as being odd, sort of out of place, wrong time, wrong place. Mm Mm-hmm. But before she could even really comprehend what she was seeing and why it was odd, she was grabbed off of her bike from behind by an unknown male abductor. This person put a gun to her left temple and forced her into that red vehicle, which was his red Dodge Magnum. From there, the perpetrator ordered Lisa to remove all of her clothing and perform a sexual act on him after which he bound, gagged, and blindfolded her. But unbeknownst to her attacker, Lisa was a clever young girl and a survivor in her own right already. And she did something very smart when she was blindfolded and something very brave, I might add. So what did she do? Well, she clenched her jaw 
realizing that once the blindfold was on, when she released her jaw, it would loosen a bit and she might be able to see, have some vision out of the blindfold. Well, that's a lot. That's really impressive forethought. I thought so as well. I don't know that I I would have, even if you thought of it, you'd be so scared and and she's a 17-year-old girl. Yeah. Okay. But this is how a very observant young Lisa made sure to remember certain details right off the bat, Amy such as the fact that the car said Magnum across the dashboard, the fact that the car had red carpets and white seats, which are also very specific details. So this is very helpful information right away. Sounds very 80s. Doesn't it, though? According to Lisa, her abductor drove for approximately 20 minutes and then stopped at a wooded area near a strip mall. Naked in the back seat, Lisa believed her assailant was bringing her to this area to kill her. She's bound, gagged. She had already been forced to perform a sexual act. She believed that he was going to end her life at this point somewhere in those woods. So she said that she was extremely surprised when he ordered her to get dressed. Lisa said that she wanted to leave clues as well at the time. So she had her menstrual cycle at the time and she was using a tampon Mm -hmm. and she removed the tampon and left it in the car between the seats. She is really smart. How clever is that? Yeah. How brave is that? Mm -hmm. It's just, it's beyond. I don't even think many adults in that situation would think to do this, but Mm. she's still a child. Yeah. After she dressed, still blindfolded, her attacker took her inside an apartment building up to what Lisa said was the 19th floor. She was counting the floors. She said she wanted to know how many floors she would have to run down Mm -hmm. to get to the bottom. Again, another smart detail. It's amazing that she now has the will to live, right? You said she was going home to end her life. And now it's so interesting that somehow this situation, in a sense, potentially could have saved her life. She talks about that. And, she I, does. you know, okay. I will discuss that as well okay. later on. But yes, it is kind of interesting that she was so specific about ending her life. And now mm-hmm. she's finding this will to yep. fight for her life. Mm-hmm. OK, so he took her to the 19th floor and brought her inside one of the apartments where he ordered Lisa to take a shower. Over the next 26 hours, Lisa remained blindfolded and endured repeated violent sexual assaults from this man. At one point, he tried to force feed her, meaning he was trying to get her to eat, but she refused, she said, because she feared he might have been poisoning her. She said, rational or not, I don't know, I just thought he was going to poison me at that point. It also, it might be a good sign for her that he's not planning on killing her if he's trying to get her to eat. I did have that thought as well, that why would he be feeding her if he was going to kill her? In the evening hours of her imprisonment, I think this was at the time where he was trying to feed her. They were sitting down. So this was on the evening of November 3rd. The news came on. He had the television on. She said at times he would put the television on Mm -hmm. and turn it off. At this point, it was on. And she heard an announcement on the news that a 17-year-old girl named Lisa Rhodes was missing if anyone had information. Now, I told you that her last name was McVeigh, but her grandmother's abusive boyfriend forced Lisa to use his last name, Rhodes. So that was her? So that was her, yes. She said when she heard this, she knew people realized she was gone and that a search was commencing. I think maybe it surprised her. Mm -hmm. She began to cry, but her assailant said he would be forced to kill her if she screamed or made any further noise. I don't think he wanted to hear her cry. Mm-hmm. But if people knew she was missing, then there was a chance she could get out of this, she thought. So she tried a different tactic. 
showing compassion to her abductor and engaging him in conversation. And in doing this, her assailant kind of opened up, Amy, admitting to her that he had abducted other women because he wanted to take revenge on women after being mistreated by them. Now, at this point, Lisa said that she offered to treat him well. She offered to be his girlfriend. She said she would be happy to. She would treat him well. She hadn't been treated well. She knew how it felt. She's so smart because this is, I think this is a great survival tip. I talk about it in my classes sometimes about, do you fight back? What are different tactics? And sometimes it depends, obviously it depends on the situation, but there are many offenders who will respond favorably to the tactics that she's using here. I think so as well. She also told her abductor that she was her ailing father's sole caregiver. And she just worried so much about who would care for him if she didn't return. Now, again, that statement wasn't true as well. But apparently, these statements worked. Because get this, Lisa's assailant decided to release her, telling her that he was going to take her home. I'm assuming he made her swear not to say anything to anyone, and she probably assured him that she wouldn't. I don't even know that that happened. Okay. And actually, I don't think that it did. I think that he thought because she was blindfolded that she probably would tell someone, but it wouldn't matter because they would never find him. Mm -hmm. This is also 1984. So let's remember this is Mm pre-DNA and surveillance and cell phones Mm -hmm. and, you know. So they got in the car, but before he took her home, her abductor stopped to get gas and then stopped at an ATM. Now, Lisa paid attention to these details, pinpointing the ATM's location and other landmarks that she could make out through the blindfold because she wanted to be able to describe the route back. Again, very smart. Her abductor then dropped Lisa off in an empty parking lot near her grandmother's home. She was still blindfolded. He said he was sorry and told her to wait five minutes before removing her blindfold and running for help. So no, I don't think he had any illusions that she wasn't going to relay this information to family and police. I think he had a moment of humanity, but also realized that he was taking a really big risk here. Mm -hmm. I think he knew that as well. Lisa complied, and after what must have felt like an eternity, she removed her blindfold, taking in what she said was a beautiful oak tree right in front of her and her freedom. She had survived. Lisa ran home at approximately 4.30 a.m., and this was about 26 hours after she was abducted. And we might expect a teenage victim like Lisa to receive love and comfort from a concerned family who reported her missing, but that was not what Lisa came home to, unfortunately. Instead, Lisa endured several hours of beatings from her grandmother's boyfriend who did not believe that she had been the victim of a violent and horrific crime. He thought she just ran away? Correct. As you said, they believe she ran away. She was probably with a boyfriend or with someone else. Despite this ongoing abuse or these hours of abuse, Lisa persisted, telling her grandmother and her grandmother's boyfriend the details of this awful ordeal over and over again, and urging, almost to the point of insistence, that Lisa call the police. So eventually, her grandmother did call the police. Though instead of saying an assailant had kidnapped and raped her granddaughter, Lisa's grandmother told the police that Lisa was making up a story about being kidnapped. Nice woman, right? That's so sad. It is very sad. 
But because Lisa had been reported missing and they called the police, police opened an investigation immediately. But get this. Okay, so Lisa went to the Tampa police station to tell them everything that had happened to her over the last two days. Lisa initially met with a female detective. And you might think this was a good thing, Amy, right? Lisa is being a young girl. She's been sexually victimized Mm -hmm. by males. But amazingly, this detective didn't believe Lisa's story either. Well, I don't understand why. Why is everyone doubting her story? Because I think her grandmother painted the picture that Lisa was just an irresponsible girl who went missing and she was making up a story. And she, you know, that's this probably a pattern of behavior. And because I think they doubted the fact that, you know, some abductor would just release Lisa. Right. So there's, you know, there's also the psychological issue of framing whereby the first information becomes the information that is passed on. And that information is the lens through which other information is observed or taken in. Mm -hmm. But of course, I can't fathom the re-victimization this poor girl was getting over and over again. But get this, and this is like might be my favorite part. After this female detective wanted to go over it again, Amy, I think this was a quote. Lisa finally said to her, no, bring in someone more intelligent. <laughs> I love her. She's awesome. I love her. Yeah, no. she's awesome. So cool. Oh, and that was how Lisa met Larry Pinkerton, who was the head of sex crimes for the police department and the first person to really believe Lisa's story and get to work. Now, Lisa was able to provide incredible critical details about her assailant that were so instrumental in helping the police, Amy. So let's talk about some of the ones we have and some of the things we haven't. So she was able to give those very specific details about the make, model, and interior of the car she was transported in. But she was also able to give a lot of information on the apartment building where she had been kept. Remember, she recognized details from the outside, but also details from the inside Mm -hmm. because she was looking down at the carpets. Anything she could see through that blindfold, she was mentally documenting in her head. Through her testimony, investigators were able to narrow their search to a high-rise apartment building, as well as the specific, again, colors of carpeting in the hallways. So that was really critical as well. Lisa knew the general areas she had traveled in and their directions. She paid attention to noises and whatever she could glimpse out of her eyes, such as a business or a highway. So she knew the certain businesses and highways that she had traveled on. In addition to all those details, though, Amy, guess what? Lisa also had critical information about her attacker's physical description. How? I thought she was blindfolded the whole time. Right. And maybe, you know, you'd say, well, she could look through the blindfold a little bit, but I would think being as Smart as she was, she wasn't going to look directly at her attacker, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe try to catch a glimpse. But she had felt his face. And I don't know during which encounter this was. He he let her touch his face. And I think she knew she wanted to touch his face because she wanted to try to figure out what he looked like. Mm -hmm. And so she did also get small glimpses through those spots in her blindfold. But Mm -hmm. she could tell that her attacker, this male, had a mustache, that he had very recently cut hair. It's very short. And that his face had pock scars on it. Hmm. And so that's what she gathered from feeling his face. So this is very perceptive and very critical. This is not just the same as observing a kind of a white male with brown hair, five foot ten. These are very specific mm-hmm. details that could help narrow the suspect pool. 
A little while after Lisa had gone to the police, she heard a news segment on television about a woman who had been found sexually assaulted and murdered. And interestingly, during the entire year of 1984, several women had suffered the same fate in the Tampa area. Now, Detective Pinkerton, that detective who believed her and the head of the sex crimes unit, Mm -hmm. he had already formed a task force with the sheriff's office and the FBI to search for the Tampa serial offender. But when Lisa heard the details in the news segment, they felt incredibly similar to what she had been through. And she said that she was certain whoever her attacker was had also murdered the woman on the news. Wow. So she was the one who initially kind of made that that leap. So it was possible here, Amy, that her detailed recollections could not just help catch a kidnapper or a sexual assailant, but these recollections could help apprehend a serial murderer. She called Pinkerton immediately and he believed her. He thought she was extremely competent, perceptive. You know, he thought the same things that you and I would think about her story. Very credible. He asked Lisa to undergo hypnosis to get as many details out as possible. I didn't even know they were kind of using that in 84. Yeah, that's surprising. Yeah, it's a little bit controversial, but guess what? Her grandmother's boyfriend would not allow it. Why do you think that is? Because he's been victimizing her? Yeah, so I would assume that he likely feared that Lisa would reveal not just details about her attack, but all the years of abuse she'd been enduring at his hand. Mm. His fate would be sealed Anyway, because even without hypnosis, Lisa told Detective Pinkerton about the sexual abuse she'd suffered in her home, and he sought justice for Lisa then on both fronts. That's incredible. So guess what? One good story here. Her grandmother's boyfriend was arrested for his crimes, and Lisa was placed in a home for teens where she was now safe. That's great. So one assailant is taken off the streets, but what about her abductor? Lisa's descriptions enabled the police to find and apprehend serial rapist and murderer Bobby Joe Long. Have you ever heard of him, Amy? No, I haven't. I'm curious to hear how many crimes were attached to him. I'm going to describe that. You also don't, I mean, I teach serial offending, but you don't really study serials very no. much. Or, oh, you, you covers... had known of this guy before? Uh, yeah. Oh. Because I, I mean, because I teach this, you know, this subject. Do you cover serials in any of your classes? Nope. Okay. Well, we'll cover him and, you know, a little bit about serial offenders in a moment. So, Megan, you said that they obviously they apprehended this offender, but how did they get to him? Like what what led them to this guy? Well, great question, Amy. Lisa's descriptions of the car and being able to pinpoint. Remember that ATM? She could say exactly which ATM he stopped at. And was there a camera? No, but I love I love, you know, what we would call old fashioned detective work because these were really the keys to unlocking the investigation. So here's what they did. The detectives checked any white male who had used that ATM, who also had a red Dodge and bingo. Bobby Joe Long was the only man who fit those markers. So I guess they went through bank records to figure out who used that ATM that night. And then they cross referenced the cars which is great. Again, it's Lisa solving her own crime here. Incredible. So, you know, it made it easier when Bobby Joe Long was the one who satisfied these two markers. And incredibly then, after this, they bring Lisa in for a photo lineup. And guess what? She ID'd him. She picked her assailant out of a photo lineup. So it's interesting about that is because you do so much on eyewitness identification 
we are not strong eyewitnesses in general, but then you're talking about a very traumatized child, really, under the age of 18 who had a blindfold on most of the time. Isn't it kind of incredible that she was able to correctly ID her attacker? Yeah. And if there wasn't corroborating evidence, I would have questioned it. But clearly there's a mountain of evidence. And I mean, this was just two weeks after her attack. Mm -hmm. As detectives interviewed Bobby Joe, it came to light that he was a violent serial rapist first who had graduated to serial murder as he admitted to killing 10 women in one year in the Tampa area. Now, were they able to solve a bunch of unsolved cases? Like he led them to the information they needed? Yes. Carpet fibers from his car unequivocally linked him not just to Lisa's abduction, but to several other victims. So they were able to determine that these fibers that were found on these murder victims were connected and they had a serial killer here. But I have to say, sadly, Bobby Joe was also able to kill two other women before he was apprehended. You should understand that that's two women after Lisa in just a couple of weeks. So we're now talking about 12 women that we know of in a year. Wow, she got very lucky. I'm sure she realized that it's very uncommon for an offender like that to let their victim go. She does realize that, but I think this is a combination of luck and smart. Yes. Just skills and just smart instincts. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a good thing that Lisa was able to help police apprehend him when they did because he was escalating. Mm -hmm. He was attacking and murdering women without any cool down time in between. And I think the reason why is because I think he realized he was about to be caught as well. Mm, Gotcha. Um, He did, I will say, 10 women in 1984. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot even for a serial offender during active years. Mm. But then this other quick ramp up, I think he knew after he released Lisa that it wasn't going to be long. I would love to hear a little bit about his background. I'm assuming he came from an abusive childhood. Yeah, Bobby Joe Long was born in 1953 in Canova, West Virginia, but his parents divorced when he was just two years old. Now, his mother moved the two to Florida, to the Florida area, where she struggled financially to make ends meet, working mostly in bars and service jobs. Also want to point out there's a genetic component here, I think, that influences Bobby Joe. He was born with two X chromosomes. Males are usually born with one X chromosome and one Y chromosome, which means that he was producing extra estrogen. And for him and other men who have this condition, it usually results in developing larger breast tissue. So this was a condition that did result in Bobby Joe having extra breast tissue for which he was greatly embarrassed and teased for really relentlessly. And while he got surgery to correct the condition, he bore the scars, which also, I guess, earned him teasing. And he also was very self-conscious because of the scars and people knowing, you know, the reason why. That's a genetic component. Now, there's another biological component here. He suffered many traumatic head injuries as a child. These include falling from a swing, a bad fall from a horse, and most seriously, he was hit by a car, which left him with a permanently deformed jaw. Isn't it true that virtually all serial killers suffered a traumatic brain injury early in life? It is very common for serial offenders of this nature, serial killers, to have suffered a type of traumatic head injury, whether that stems from an accident, a fall, or some type of abuse. 
But Amy, it was Bobby Joe's relationship with his mother that was equally, if not more, damaging. For most of his childhood and adolescence, Bobby Joe lived in a one-bedroom apartment and shared a bed with his mother until he was in his early teenage years. But his mother often brought men home with her, and he would sleep on the couch on those nights, which he really detested. It's pretty well documented that he really came to hate his mother's behavior, resenting her for working in a bar, wearing revealing clothing, and having what he deemed inappropriate relationships with many men. Though his mother did make enough money to move the two to a Miami suburb when he was a teenager, where he finally actually had his own room and stability, those resentments were already far gone. It sounds like there are many variables here that are related to future offending. Absolutely. Many of these variables, again, are common of serial murderers' backgrounds. But in this Miami suburb, uh, things changed a little bit. Bobby Joe kind of flourished, and he met Cindy, who would become his future wife. Things appeared to be going well. The pair married, and Bobby Joe enlisted in the army. But Cindy said that her husband was very controlling, and that this behavior began shortly after they became married. And then, get this, he had another terrible motorcycle accident. And this one was also really bad. After this, his wife Cindy said that Bobby Joe became violent and sexually obsessive and demanding in a way that he was not prior to this accident. Nevertheless, the pair stayed together for a while. They had two children, and Cindy described him as a very good father. But after a particularly brutal attack by her husband, Cindy eventually divorced Bobby Joe in 1980. Unbeknownst to Cindy, beginning in the mid to late 1970s, her husband had begun to sexually assault women by responding to classified ads of women selling household items. It's similar to how we see modern day people being victimized after posting on Craigslist. Yes, that's what I thought of as well. In this regard, he assaulted 50 women over a 10-year period using this method. By the way, this comes out to around five assaults a year. Mm -hmm. And while he might have been caught and jailed on a minor offense, there were no major convictions here. Okay. And then he went on to murder at least 10 women. He confessed to eight of the murders and went to trial for two, but things got very complicated. You see, Bobby Joe received a death sentence for the murder of a victim named Virginia Johnson which was later reversed due to improper evidence presented to the jury during the sentencing hearing. However, he did receive a second death sentence later for the murder of a victim named Michelle Denise Sims, as well as several life sentences for all of his victims. It's interesting that he had murdered that many women, but got caught because he let one person go. Though I wonder if he was regretting that decision. I saw an interview that he talked about it, and he did say something like, I kind of knew I was cooked after I let her go. Okay. But he did have some humanity. He had some compassion towards her. Yeah. So I think, you know, maybe he had the regret. Maybe he didn't. Yeah. Okay. I think it was Ted Bundy who said, you know, it's really a myth that people say we really want to get caught. No, we don't. We don't want to get caught. We want to keep doing what we're doing. But there are a few who did say that they were relieved to have gotten caught because they would have kept going on. I think Dahmer was one of those. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to know what was really in his head. 
In the end, Bobby Joe Long went from serial rapist to serial murderer, and it's unknown if and when he would have been caught if it not had been for the incredible bravery of Lisa McVeigh Poland. She uses the last name Poland. Now you might be asking, what about Lisa's life, right? Was she able to come back from this horrific and traumatizing ordeal? Think about the level of healing that Lisa would have to do from being traumatized, victimized, both Mm -hmm. physically and emotionally. She certainly could not go back to live with her abusive grandmother. Detective Pinkerton found Lisa a safe place in a teen shelter to reside. But she was already 17 at the time, and so she aged out of the center the following year. After, though, she went to live with an aunt and uncle in whose home Lisa said she finally found a family with lots of love and support. I thought, God, it's such a shame that she couldn't have lived with them earlier, that she went into this grandmother's home. Mm -hmm. More about Lisa. She went on to work for the Department of Parks and Recreation before applying to and earning the position of dispatcher with the Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, who were a major part of the task force that helped apprehend Bobby Long. If I did not mention it earlier, there was a task force. Mm-hmm. They had, you know, the sheriffs, local police, FBI. They had everyone in on this once they realized that they were looking at a serial murderer. Now, after putting herself through the police academy, Lisa earned the position of master deputy in her department. And she now works as a school resource officer helping to protect children. Ah. That's amazing. I knew she was going to go on to do something great. Lisa went on to get married and has a daughter and now a granddaughter. Lisa is a motivational speaker, giving many talks over the years around the country, and she continues to do so. Mm. She also helped make a movie about her experience called Believe Me, and I've seen it. And it's very good. It's really, really good. It looks like you can watch it on Amazon Prime. So I know what I will be doing. And it was a Lifetime film. So I'm assuming if you have Lifetime on demand, you could watch it there too. Thank you for that. I originally saw it on Lifetime. I'm sure of that. Okay. And I thought it was very well done. Lisa is a continual model, role model. She continues to advocate for those who need help. And we often talk on our podcast about how closure is just a word in the dictionary. For Lisa and many of the families of Bobby Joe Long's victims, they were able to attend his execution by lethal injection in 2019, where he died in the Florida prison system at age 65. And we hope for their sake that it alleviated some of their pain and suffering, having the option and exercising their right to attend his execution. And I can talk about Lisa's feelings about that as well. Now that we finished talking about the story, I want to discuss both victimization and offending here, Amy. This is the kind of case where I think it's very clear cut. You know, some cases we struggle to think about what theories are Mm -hmm. relevant, but Mm -hmm. I see so many theories relevant on both sides of the coin. I know. And I know that you actually teach victimization theories in greater detail than I do. But for me, this was kind of a clear cut case of routine activities theory. Yep. That's what I was thinking of. You would have said that? Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, that along with deviant place theory and lifestyle theory and passive precipitation, there's almost a little bit of everyone. But routine activities theory, lack of a capable guardian. She was by herself. It was late at night. Motivated offender. You have this serial sex offender who's kind of on the prowl. And then you also have a suitable target, a young girl who's by herself on her bike late at night. Right. 
So those are the three components of routine activities theory. So at least that was very clear to me. Mm-hmm. So routine activities theory, I don't know if you teach us, but it's a macro level theory, meaning it was originally designed to explain crime rates, such as higher crime rates in certain areas at a specific time. But it can be applied to individuals as well. So I just want to briefly discuss the origins of routine activities theory. This theory was developed by criminologists Cohen and Felsen in the 1970s. There are a number of reasons why the crime rate went up in the 1970s. I cover this in my classes. I cover, you know, the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement and, you know, a lot about there being a clash sort of between government and people. But one of the main findings from Cohen and Felsen was that additionally, women were leaving the homes and they were going into the workforce, you know, in great numbers in the 70s, which meant that they were leaving their homes vulnerable And they were also, unfortunately, because of that, becoming targets for crime themselves. I think there's also, I don't know if it was that study or a subsequent study that talked about when you have these capable guardians leaving the home, obviously the men are the capable guardians going to war. The women were watching the home. The homes are unattended, but there's also teenagers left unattended. And we know crime peaks in young, you know, later adolescence, teenage years, early adulthood. So there's kind of a lack of a capable guardian watching over those, quote, motivated offenders as well. Very well put, Amy. Yes. And that helps explain it very much so, I think. I I just wanted to geek out for a second about routine activities theory because it's one we don't talk about very often and the origins of it interested me. But let's turn to Bobby Joe Long now. There's nothing straightforward about serial offending, but There are the clear indicators here. Bobby Joe Long was a serial killer who sexually abused his victims prior to murdering them. He very clearly stated he did this because he hated women and he hated women because of his mother. And I don't believe that was, you know, I don't think that was a lie. Bobby Joe had a traumatic childhood in all regards. Mm -hmm. You know, biologically, he was different because of this chromosomal abnormality, which made him a target for bullying made him self-conscious, low self-esteem. He had several falls and accidents, which clearly affected some of his behavior and personality changes, as reported by Cindy. He had a mother with whom he had a very dysfunctional relationship. So he had, you know, so many of these hallmarks of those who commit serial murder. Unfortunately, it's almost the perfect storm. It's like if you were thinking of, you know, what, What situations would breed a serial killer? He almost checks every box. Bobby Joe Long does check most of the boxes, unfortunately. You are correct. And ironically, in the end, it was his one act of humanity that led to his downfall. Mm -hmm. And I think he knew it would. I think that Lisa was also, I won't say grateful for meeting him, but she definitely doesn't regret that in, in regards, that it changed her life and she was able to change the life of others. So did the system get it right? Well, Mm -hmm. Bobby Joe Long was apprehended, convicted, and received the death penalty. For those who oppose the death penalty, they might say no, hoping for a life sentence instead of, you know, the death penalty as his maximum punishment. I also think the system, although maybe eventually they got it right, I mean, he had many victims before they got it right. So I think it took a little long. It did. I'm not saying that's any, it's not any one person's fault, but I don't know if those earlier, you were saying earlier, he may have been apprehended for some lower level crimes. Maybe he wasn't punished harshly enough to deter him then, or maybe nothing would have deterred him anyway. Yeah, that's a possibility. I don't think he could have been deterred, to be quite honest. 
And I think, again, it was 1984. So without the physical description of him and knowing like specifics, it might have been harder. But yeah, it, it took a long time. You know, others might say on the flip side that this wasn't justice for the families, even though he got the death penalty. Do you know how long it took? Did you catch the time? I don't know if I talked about how long it took for him to be executed. I mean, I could tell you the average time is over well over a decade, probably closer to 15, some cases, 20, 30 years. Some cases, people die on death row waiting. Correct. And Bobby Long's took 35 years. Oh, wow. Which is a very long time. So why did it take so long? Usually it takes long because there's so many appeals. There's mandatory appeals when you're on death row, but 35 years seems very long. Is there a reason why it took exceptionally long? Yeah, well, I think there's a few reasons, although it's not entirely clear. I will say this. One of them was because, as I told you, he won one of his appeals. Mm -hmm. And so one of his sentences was reversed, which mm -hmm. definitely took time. As another expert said in an interview, Bobby Joe Long was a puppet master working with the legal system very well for quite some time. You know, there were a lot of convictions and sentences, but he was able also to delay more than most death row inmates. He would make certain confessions, then he would repeal them. Uh -huh. He would enter certain pleas, then he would try to rescind those pleas. Mm -hmm. He really was a puppet master. He would win some appeals, and then he would rescind some confessions. Uh -huh. He was good at making things very drawn out. Oh, because he was also probably a psychopath. Oh, absolutely. I think so. <laughs> but in the end, Amy, it was Lisa's quick thinking and attention to detail that took down an incredibly dangerous person who likely would have perpetrated these crimes for several more years. So I have to say we commend Lisa not only for her fortitude in a traumatic crime, but for her continued efforts in policing, in helping to protect victims, and in continuing to inspire others with her motivational talks. She reminds me very much of Mary Vincent and some of these other women survivors that not only were they able to survive the unthinkable, they were able to turn it around and make it into something positive. And I've, Absolutely. I find that so admirable. I find her very admirable. So thank you, Lisa. We wish her the best of luck. And I am so certain that she will be successful in all of her endeavors to help and protect others. Thank you, Amy. And thanks again to everyone for listening today. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include a 2019 press conference with Lisa McVeigh, an article in BlurredByLines.com, an Oxygen interview with Lisa McVeigh, NBC News, and a transcript from the 1988 appeal, Robert Joe Long v. State of Florida. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.